Okay, and for our final presentation at Canada Rocks, we have a roundtable discussion with Katie LaChapelle of Canaccord, Matt Fernley of Battery Materials Review, and Rodney Hooper. Unfortunately, we had two other panelists who we thought would come. One was Ernie, but for compliance reasons, uh, given that he just went public, you know, he couldn't be on the same panel as someone who uh, helped underwrite that IPO, which was Canaccord. So we figured Katie was um, better placed than Ernie on this panel. I want to cover what we've heard from this conference. You may not have heard of all, all the interviews, but but I certainly have. And talk a little bit about Canada, use this opportunity to talk more broadly, ex-Canada, what's happening in the lithium market, because you guys have very good and interesting perspective. And uh, we're in a bout of velocity on the downside after a, a January effect to the upside, not to do anything with lithium, but you know, global financial crisis potentially brewing, but creating opportunities if you have spare cash. Uh, lithium constantly provides you retracements. You know, you always think you may have missed it, but you know, if you wait, <laughs> you could come back and buy dips and get quality assets at at very good prices. So I want to start by just basically, we had an interview with Ron Mitchell of Global Lithium. And one of the things he mentioned, which I, I keep repeating, the, the idea of how sentiment and narratives shift globally about various things. So he brought up the greatest hard rock mine in the world is Greenbushes, right? And it's now owned by Albemarle and Tangshi and, and IGO. But when, that was available, that, that went public in, I don't know, 2010, the, the first lithium 1.0 bull cycle. And this is a Western Australian asset. And they chose to IPO, not in Australia, but in Canada, right? Because there was no interest in Western Australia for lithium, but there was interest in Canada for lithium. But now what you have is like this Canada discount or a TSX discount. And, you know, so there's just, there's sentiment shifts like that that keep happening every six or 12 months. You know, DLE was hot. Argentina was hot. You know, now Quebec is hot. Canada, Ontario, Hard Rock is, uh, you know, is, is back. So, you know, there's but there still is a TSX discount and there still is a Canada discount. That's why you're seeing a lot of these Crocodile Dundee Australians coming into Canada but then they want to list the Canadian assets, even if it's listed in TSX, they list it, you know, on the ASX, you know, so there's an element of like Australia investors are very enthusiastic, you know, and or Canadians are too pessimistic, right? So question for all of you, like, are Canadians right to be too jaded, you know, about Canada based on, you know, the Namaska and, and Canada Lithium bankruptcies, you know, or are Australians, you know, naive, you know, at the timeline permitting, you know, issues um, or difficulties in Canada versus Western Australia? Yeah, no problem. Um, I would say some of the premium, I think, is also due to the fact that the Australians, I think they just know lithium better than the Canadians. They've had successful operating lithium mines. They have industry know-how. Um, based on my experiences and my discussions that I have with our team in Australia, shout out to Reg and Tim. Uh, I, I think the Aussies are just following the space more actively. And I think there's more media coverage in Australia that follows lithium. So I think a, a part of that is also a strong retail following. Um, for the projects that are listed in Canada that are ASX listed or dual listed, 
I would also say in my discussions, the institutional investor community in Canada is definitely more cautious when it comes to earlier stage exploration plays in lithium, uh, permitting timelines in lithium, projects being successful when they actually go through the development and construction phase. I don't necessarily want to blame Namaska for that, like you alluded to that story, but it's definitely still in the back of everyone's mind. It's improved a little bit, but even a year ago when I was talking to investors who were perhaps revisiting the space as we saw the run-up in prices, Canadian investors would still mention Namaska to me. So it was, it was definitely still in the back of their heads. So I think that's a function of it. On the permitting and timeline, I would say... I guess they're not naive. I would just say maybe there's a lack of experience in permitting in mind for some of the Australians. I don't I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think also Canada is an amazing mining country. I just think it does take time to permit mines in Canada. There's clear regulations, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's always quick. My observation would be that part of the reason why the North American lithium producers are um, underperforming, Freudian slip there, is because... U.S. brokers are almost entirely negative on the outlook for lithium. So if you look at consensus price forecasts for lithium, I think the Australians are much closer to the market, as Katie said. And I think that a lot of the U.S. bulge bracket brokers are very negative on the lithium price. And as a result of that, they're pushing lithium stock valuations down an awful lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why the North American lithium stocks are not really getting out of the door in the same way that the Australian ones are. Obviously, you've got a different product. The bulk of Australians up till now anyway have been spodumene concentrate. The North Americans have been brine. But nevertheless, the Australians are trading at much higher multiples than, than the US listed lithium stocks. And that impacts what the retail audience thinks and it impacts what the institutional audience thinks. So I think, you know, that's another reason. So how would you explain then a company like Sigma Lithium, which is listed in Canada and the US and trades at a, a very high valuation overall I, I, relative to forecast, et cetera. I don't know, but it's still it's still not in production, but it has re-rated aggressively and it's listed in Canada and the US, not Australia. Um, it's not a Canadian asset, right? So it, it's, mm. it's a Brazilian asset. So it's not tainted by Canada's failures. Is that the only reason? I mean, I, I I would say a lot of that at the beginning was retail support for the for the stock rather than institutional support. Uh, I mean, one of the the issues with that stock is it has quite a low trading liquidity, or it, it certainly did up until recently, and yeah. and the trading liquidity was much too low for most institutional investors to to invest in the stock. So that one pushed up very strongly because of the retail interest in the stock. You know, if you look at the other sort of North American listed stocks, the the institutional versus retail is much higher proportion. Whereas in Sigma, the, the retail was a much higher proportion than this institutional at the beginning. And that's this, I think that's the same situation with Patriot and a lot of the exploration stocks in Quebec. You know, it's retail investors who are really getting excited that are pushing these things up. But the institutions are still very wary because they're following the sell side forecasts. And that's a good point, I think, Matt, because if you look, what goes hand in hand with those negative and bearish forecasts is to say lithium's a commodity and therefore it should trade on a multiple of X, and that X is lower than specialty chemical. Livent managed to list at $17, and I think it's trading at $20 or $21 now. So 
if you think, you know, in terms of what that what people are prepared to discount uh, forward, you know, growth in in uh, in production and you know bring it into the current price, you certainly haven't seen it on a pure play like that. So it's uh, it's yeah, it's this treatment of is it specialty or is it a just a commodity? I did not invest in Sigma for a very long time because it was so illiquid, but. Yep. The liquidity has significantly improved since they've listed on, I don't know if it's NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. And there, there was a time when they did a financing that, you know, no bank was involved with. A10 um, actually raised all the money themselves mm -hmm. because their lead banker, basically, there were jitters in the market. And they basically said, you know, we can't go to market right now. You got to wait like six weeks. And and Anna and... Um, and the team said, well, we can't wait six weeks. We need to order long lead time items. We're going to go. And they brought a bunch of institutions on the register at that time without the brokers. But like when I think about retail interest, you know, this was controlled by is controlled 47 percent by a private equity group out of Brazil. This is not of Vancouver, of Toronto, yeah. of Earth of Sydney it doesn't have a natural retail audience, and so again, why is Sigma performing from a retail and institutional basis with a U.S. and a Canada listing? You know, it's performing as good or better than any Australian. I think it's twofold. First, I want to agree with Matt on the institutional interest and liquidity issues. When I first started covering Sigma, it didn't have the Nasdaq listing. Um, I was trying to put very hard liquidity was a concern for a number of institutional investors. So they, they weren't deploying capital in the name or even really doing work on the name. And then I think when you did start to see the pickup in, in retail interest and the NASDAQ listing, liquidity started to improve. The stock obviously had performed incredibly well. And the institution said, okay, what am I missing here? And they started to do their work. And I think when they started to do their work at that point, they saw like, this is a high quality asset. There's a ton of growth potential here. It's real. It's pushing forward very quickly. I mean, Anna, Credit to her and in, in the execution she's done on that project and hitting her timelines. Um, so, so institutions are doing more work and, and there is that interest now. With respect to valuation, I, I think a function of it is also like they are a near-term producer. I think, I mean, Core obviously trades at a premium as well. They're now in production in Australia. But if we look at North American assets, there's not really that many, um, at least within my coverage, that are very, very near-term. I mean, Lithium Americas has Kachari, Sigma has Grosso de Cerillo, and that, that's going to be in production within a month or two. So it's, I think that bakes a little bit into the premium as well. And I think the takeout interest, which I, I'm sure we'll discuss in detail later, but I think it's, it's always been very clear that Sigma is up for sale. And I'm sure, you know, that, that helps. <laughs> that, I think that that's a significant component to its valuation as well. And the fact that it's non-Canada and the fact that it's, DMS only and flow sheet. Let's just talk a little bit more about valuation. You have Patriot, you know, we talked about like a billion market cap or so, billion, billion and a half. They have no resource out yet, but very exciting drill holes. And then you have companies like Frontier and Critical Elements at less than half that valuation, much closer to production. And uh, I asked Blair Way of Patriot, also asked Ken Brinsden, you know, about this and and their explanation is like it's big right it's a giga mine right right and uh like pilgangora for pilbara is a giant mine so therefore it always had a, a premium valuation and i don't know 
Kidman or Mount Holland, you know, owned now by West Farmers, you know, Green Bushes, theoretically, and and Wajina. But to be fair, I mean, I don't think Mineral Resources gets a huge valuation for the size of of that asset. But then on the flip side, you mentioned Core, Katie, which is a sm- very small asset, uh, but it's in production, and that has re-rated aggressively. So why hasn't Sayana and Piedmont, let's say, which is mi- middle-sized, re-rated in the same way uh, that that Core has and the same way that Sigma has? And, and, and those are actually Australian-listed as well as uh, in the case of Piedmont, U.S. listed, so there's not like like I don't I don't get that. I think with Core, uh, as you said, it's a very small asset, but obviously there's the operational leverage of of going into production. Sayona, I think the market sees risks there. I mean, they're obviously trying to restart an asset that previously failed, and I think the market is sort of sitting there going, well. You know, I I don't want the same thing to happen that's happened before. I'm going to wait out for about six months and just make sure um, that everything's all right before they before I I think about coming in. So I think that you know, Sayona is a very special case that the market is is quite wary about assets that have failed in the past. Core, you know, has never been developed. It, it is obviously a much smaller asset in terms of the resource size um, but trading at a huge premium compared to the rest of the market really because there there weren't too many you know new startup projects in 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 western australia uh, or in it's actually in the territory but in australia at the time so i i think you know that's that's the situation on core you know wajna doesn't trade a premium because there were uh, I think doubts about its about its products being very fine grained. So that's one of the reasons why I think that that people weren't prepared to give Wojner a premium. And then obviously with the lithium hydroxide refinery projects in in Western Australia, let's just say that so far they haven't covered themselves in glory in terms of starting up on time on budget. So you know I think there's a lot of uncertainties around the Western Australian integrated projects, which are why you know, perhaps they're not trading in a premium either. So, you know, there, there are specific company specific reasons why, you know, a lot of these assets are not uh, trading at, at, at premium levels. And of course, with with Patriot, nobody knows how big it could be. I mean, it, it, it could it could be huge. Obviously, assets like that do trade at a premium. And I think to add on, nobody knows how big it's going to be. I, I look at Great Bear Resources from the precious metal space and the market got excited. They had to keep guessing how big that was going to be, how big that was going to be. It was acquired before there was even a resource on it. So I, I think you they could play it either way, right? They could go accelerate towards development or they could, you know, let the market guess, let the strategics guess um, and, and see what happens. Certain assets in Canada are reasonably close to infrastructure and others aren't. And sometimes you hear questions around is it possible things could end up stranded assets or what have you? I mean, do you think everything in the end it gets, you know, is accessible and, and get the market? Or or could we, you know, could we see severe delays or, or major issues with infrastructure for some of the projects? I think I think size matters in mining. If it's big enough uh, to trade at a premium, I think that the infrastructure will be developed. But for smaller assets that may be infrastructure constrained, I don't think infrastructure will necessarily be developed because from what we are clearly seeing now, 
there's going to be enough spodumene there to keep North America ticking over for a very long time. So I think, you know, uh, size is going to matter. And, um, you know, after size, it's going to be proximity to to infrastructure. Um, but for the for the smaller projects, yeah, infrastructure proximity is going to be very, very important. I want to go back to one thing that you said. I think, Matt, you're very right on uh, North American lithium. It's failed twice in the market. Investors are, are and when I was walking around PDAC and every Australian like, is it going to work this time? It was bankrupt twice, right? There is definitely a wait and see. But I want to draw uh, a parallel, Katie, to a company you cover, MP Materials and Rare Earth, which was a completely busted story, uh, but it went public at a billion-dollar valuation. It rocketed to a $5 billion valuation uh, and where it sits today. If you want something tied to EV, lithium is much more tied to EV than Rare Earths is. They're fundamentally selling all their product to China today. I think the EBITDA of uh, of MP is is on par or maybe lower than what's expected. Who knows? We'll see what happens with the North American lithium opportunity. They did go public once they were in production. They had one quarter under their belt of production. Once North American lithium gets a quarter, a couple of shipments out, I definitely think the market should make that comparison to MP and then say, oh, the Piedmont and Siana collectively, this asset it's producing 200,000, 220,000 tons, you know, could be generating five, $600 million of EBITDA in the same way that MP is. And therefore, why should it trade at such a discount? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I don't cover uh, MP. We do out of the US. So that by, I know, by no means Sorry. an expert, but you gave a, you gave a great explanation, Howard. <laughs> but I do I think, I, I think I just have to agree with what Matt said. I think the market's waiting to see. Like I was at Sayona, I saw the, what they were doing with the plant. I, there was a lot of personnel on site who had previous experience, know what went wrong, and they're trying to mitigate those issues going forward. But I think, like we all know, NAL has its challenges, um, and I think the market wants to see how it delivers over the first six months. And to your point, I, I think, yeah, if we get some comfort around that, there's an opportunity for the stock to re-rate. And then I think more broadly with Sayona, I think Moblin's getting more interest now. They're clearly doing a lot of drilling there. I think they've committed to more this year. I think that's a signal that something bigger is happening with Moblin, even outside of um, the NAL plant. So it's sort of let's wait and see, I think, I think is a little bit of the story right now. They're definitely talking about Moblin. And like many companies, you know, that have multiple assets, the market often only focuses on one and not the other. If Moblin was independent, you know, it would have mm -hmm. a significant market cap, you know, on its own in the same way that Patriot and Winsome have developed substantial market caps. I'm going to dig more into uh, some of Rodney's questions here on uh, Quebec and Ontario. How, how do Canada's deposits, you know, grade, strip ratios, and impurities, um, you know, compare with WA? I can give a maybe a Canada perspective, and Rodney probably knows Australia better than me. But um, on average, I would say the grades were pretty good in Canada. Like you've got something like Rose at whatever 0.9%, but you have really high grade deposits like PAC that are 2%. So I think the, the average grade is probably slightly higher. I think in terms of critical impurity levels, some of the Canadian assets screen, uh, screen very, very well. Um, you look at something like a critical elements or a frontier, like they have some of the lowest iron oxide content in the world. Um, in spodumene, it's like below half a percent. So obviously screens very well. Mica, it's a bit of a mixed bag depending on the deposit. Something like critical elements is very low. 
yeah, I think I think from a Canadian perspective, I would say the impurities are probably one of the positives. Grade depending on the deposit can be higher, but I'll I'll let Rodney or Matt add their thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would agree with that. I mean, I I think that um, probably the sort of out and out grades, with the exception of green bushes, are coming in on average higher in in Canada than they are coming in on average on Australia. It's interesting in terms of the the processing approach. I think there's a generational difference as well on the processing approach because a lot of the early generation mines, they use DMS and flotation, but the later generation mines are, are, are targeting only DMS. Uh, and that obviously has an impact on your operating costs. Um, if you only need to, to crush and then sort dense media separate rather than going with flotation, which requires very fine grained uh, grinding. Um, so I think, you know, if if you can use simply DMS on the Canadian operations, as a, a lot of the new management teams are suggesting, I think that's an advantage as well. The bulk of the Australian operations, you're having to use flotation on them. So uh, and that's a fine grind. Uh, and then the, the point that Katie made about the iron content is also very important as well. That's very related to what the country rocks are. So, for instance, Rose Deposit is a is a very specific example and then you know pack again i think that's more to do with the size and and the purity of the um of the spodumene in the middle of the deposit you know it's um one of the things that we found in a lot of these deposits is where the the pegmatites is quite small in the contact zones with the country rock you get much lower recoveries and that's because of you you get a lot more impurities in the pegmatites so you know that's an important consideration I thought that Canada stacked up really well versus WA. I mean, in the end, I guess the question, you know, will come down to, you know, how things look like for cost, et cetera. I mean, they stack up, they stack up well there in conjunction with low cost power at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I guess the power consideration yeah. is very, very important. I mean, in Western Australia, you mostly gas, gas-based power and coal-based power. Whereas certainly in Quebec, you have the opportunity to use hydro and, and that could be a huge sort of differentiator in terms of processing. Adding on the hydro side, and, and I know we focus a lot on Quebec. It's, they've got whatever, seven cents per kilowatt hour. It's incredibly cheap in Quebec. But even in Ontario, like you have a not that much more expensive, you have a low carbon grid, like uh, I think it's 50 or 60% of Ontario's grid is nuclear. The other portion, a large portion is hydro. So I think... Um, both provinces are going to be good from a power perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think the only question on Canada is the point that we mentioned earlier in terms of how long it's going to take to permit. Um, because obviously in Australia, you can go through permitting very, very quickly, less than a year. Uh, and obviously if it's going to take, you know, a long time to permit as the James Bay project did, for instance, then, then that, you know, could hold Canada back a little bit. Okay. Uh, and Ken was also talking about uh, in Western Australia, yeah, permitting is faster, but um, they have 5%, you know, state royalties and uh, no government support whatsoever of any type, like you're on your own, right? But whereas in Canada, um, Patriot just did $50 million in flow through financing, 100% of that needs to be spent on drilling, right? You know, so they're incentivizing drilling and hopefully with critical minerals legislation, you know, and, and competition with the U.S., you're going to see some you know, further subsidization or tax incentives, you know, coming into Canada for select projects or, or for all, all projects. But he was commenting positively about that. 
But with respect to permitting, you know, is Quebec permitting, you know, staffed sufficiently to process, you know, all the new permit applications, right? If Patriot's coming and Winsome's coming and Allchem, uh, you know, we, we saw how long it took with critical elements. Do you know, Katie? I would argue probably not. At least history would tell us so. Like the the way it works is you have the provincial, at the provincial level, I think the federal level has proven that it can do it. There's strict timelines around the federal level. And I think that's also a key distinction to understand versus the provincial level. There's no set timeline for the provincial body. And the body that looks at that is, or looks at the provincial environmental assessment in Quebec is the Quebec government in conjunction with the Cree First Nation. So it's a committee that's called the COMEX. Critical elements in their time dealing with the COMEX they went through multiple rounds of questions. It took them quite a long time to get responses to those questions. I, I think a function of that was COVID, the time that they were doing it at. But at the same time, they, they did say they that the comic seems a little bit understaffed. So I think there, there are some concerns around their ability to proceed quickly, especially now in an environment where they're going to be looking to permit multiple, potentially multiple mines at the same time. But I do think there's political pressure to speed up that process. And I, and I think Hopefully there will be some improvements and there'll be better staff so that they can accelerate permitting on a go-forward basis. But yeah, history would tell us that it's not quick. It's quite an extensive process. I mean, I, I guess the question will also be if it's DMS only or what it is that you're doing for the mine, that should alter the timelines. If it's a fully integra vertically integrated project, that's going to take some doing. Yeah, I, I agree on that too. I think I think the be they're, they're business friendly. I'll say that. The career are incredibly business friendly. They want good professional jobs in country. They want long lasting, well-paying jobs. Um, they're definitely not anti-mining by any means, but I would say on the permitting front, I, I would say one of the concerns is what will be the cumulative impact of all these projects happening at once. And why I say that is when I was reading through the minutes of, of critical elements in the COMEX, some of the questions that were being asked were how many trucks are going to be going up and down the roads on a daily basis. And if you think of five projects being developed in the same area, I think there's other aspects that we're not thinking about that are project specific, that when you think of all the cumulative projects together that the government and the Cree and the COMEX are actually thinking about. Um, so I'm not sure how that will play into the speed to which projects get permitted or developed or how many there are, but I do think it's something that they are considering seriously. I think another consideration when you're thinking about permitting is where, where the downstream sits, because yeah. obviously... You know, if the downstream sits at the mine, well, that's a lot more complex. But if the downstream sits, you know, hundreds of kilometers away from the mine, then that's a lot of truck journeys. There's lots of sort of difficult things. I mean, obviously, if you're moving, say, for a big mine, 500,000 tons of spodumene concentrate a year, that's a little bit different from moving, say, 30,000 tons a year of lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. So there's there's a big trade-off there in terms of where you're going to put the the downstream processing side of things and and how that's going to impact permitting i think that, that's a a good point uh because that was my next question the the quebec government i mean it very much wants to attract major investment in the midstream in particular i mean we've argued and i think this is the case as much as quebec might want to get you know battery and and, and auto plants that, that's mostly where ontario right that that's Volkswagen just announced they're going to go to Ontario, but uh, Beckencore, you know, for graphite, you know, and lithium hydroxide, you know, for for live end, you know, and cathode uh, making, right? That midstream, Quebec seems very well placed, and and there's a strategy from the government to 
support that. Question though, you know, does Canada have the necessary, you know, downstream know-how, you know, to expand into chemical production or can this be imported from China or like, if you look at Kemerton of Albemarle, right? And you look at Quinana of Tangshi taking the best rock in the world, theoretically should just be copy paste of what they're doing in China, you know, but they have had substantial delays, cost overruns, you know, I don't know if it's a skill shortage in Australia. You, you know, um, there is you know, people complain labor costs are going up in Australia um, because there's a big boom, but there's a skills question. So what do you think about, you know, Canada's ability to move downstream? Because a lot of them have asked. I mean, the, the country, the, the province has aspirations. Uh, Livent is building there and all can may or may not build in Canada. Um, um, critical elements may or may not build. We'll see what happens with Sayana, Piedmont with the carbonate plant versus hydroxide, you know, et cetera. So what do you think about Quebec's ability? Well, I'll just say that one of the things that held back in Western Australia was obviously COVID because for two years you couldn't get anyone in or out of Western Australia. And that certainly impacted, um, you know, the labor availability and it impacted bringing the plants on. So, you know, fingers crossed, you wouldn't have that again. But but your question comes back to the the fundamental point that people don't get about lithium chemicals insofar as that it's a lithium chemical. It's not a commodity. And, you know, it, it's all very well saying, you know, you're using the best ore body in the world for, for these sites. But the fact is that every ore body is different and the breakdown of the spodumene concentrate that's coming out of every ore body is different. And your your lithium hydroxide refinery needs to be tailored for that specific input of spodumene concentrate. So, you know, it, it is more complex than just sort of you know, taking the, the the standard tech in China and applying it to Canada. Having said that, um, you know, Canada and North America is graduating an awful lot of chemical engineers. They have very, you know, talented people. As we build more of these plants outside China, uh, we'll have more, more people with the knowledge base to build these plants. So my feeling is that, yeah, the first couple of plants are going to have teething issues. And then as we get better at them, we should have less teething issues. Not to say that we'll have no teething issues because we've all been in the industry for long enough to know that no management team ever hits its timeline or its financial aims. But hopefully we should have less teething issues as we build more and more of these plants over time. It's going to be key to producing a consistent feedstock to going into wherever it's it's done. And that's where... You know, the the sort of the issue previously was people did it on tight budgets and rushing and, and trying to do it at the lowest cost and whatever in a difficult cycle. The question is now, if we see downstream being built outside of China in an upcycle with enough budget to spend, then you'll have a chance to do all sorting and all sorts of things and trying to get a consistent blend and feedstock so that you're not trying to save a buck like a lot of the guys. In, in Oz when they were on a shoestring last time leveraged and tight for money right okay um I'm now going to switch to a few topics here I, I want to talk about um auto OEMs you know and what they're doing um I want to talk about 
Lithium Americas tied to an auto OEM. Uh, and then I want to talk broadly, you know, M&A speculation, you know, kind of intra-lithium industry M&A, and then from outside lithium, you know, into lithium. So uh, let's start with Tesla and their hydroxide plant in Corpus Christi, which I understand now is meant to be 40,000 tons of lithium hydroxide that they highlighted 50 gigawatt hours at their investor day. Um, but previously, like at battery day, and subsequently, there was uh, there was some data point that they were investing like $350 million. So we had estimated that they were only going 15,000 tons. As I understand it now, they're going 40,000 tons. Uh, you know, Patriot and, and Ken Brinsden, you know, emphasized, you know, the importance of like a giga mine could supply one customer mm -hmm. in Tesla's hydroxide. They're taking some feedstock from Piedmont. They're taking some feedstock from I'm not sure where else. I mean, I know they have Liontown down the road, but if you can kind of like talk, any of you talk to that. And also I want to talk about sustainability of hard rock. Ken Brinson talked about like anyone who says hard rock is too dirty is calling it way too early. Obviously, ex-China conversion is going to be done on a cleaner grid, but there are other methodologies of refining which Tesla is using this, uh, they didn't call it Metsu Odutech, they called it soda ash leaching. So if you can talk about your thoughts on sustainability, you know, these different types, you know, because Tesla is basically saying, we're going to do this and then we're going to teach Albemarle and Livent, you know, kind of how, how to do it, their current suppliers. So what do you think about that? The diverse, you know, spodumene supply, is that going to be a problem for Tesla? And then the overall sustainability, you know, the hydroxide re refining flow sheets? I think with Tesla, we don't know. So obviously Tesla's, what they've done in the space over the last 10 years is amazing. You know, they've lowered the footprint of their factories. They've in introduced efficiencies. They've completely changed the nature of the EV manufacturing industry. Now, the big question is, can they do that to the chemicals industry? Because, you know, the, the chemicals industry processing spodumene concentrate into lithium hydroxide into lithium carbonate is a different industry to the cell manufacturing industry or to the ev industry and particularly in the cell manufacturing industry you're dealing with very very pure products and you're not in the sort of mining and processing industries or the upstream processing industries and there's variability of those products and how does your plant adapt and all sorts of things so we don't know whether tesla can do what it says it can do and, and maybe it can do it but maybe it can't do it in the timeline that it's that it's intimated that it's going to uh target you know if they are able to do it then they're they're very welcome to turn around to Albemarle and sqm and you know uh namaska and live Ent and everyone and, and and tell them how to do it because we'll be the first people in history to build a lithium hydroxide plant in a year and get it to spew out high quality material within a year um, so, you know, if that's the case, then they're very welcome to show off and explain to everybody else how to do it. On the sustainability, I think the big issue about sort of spodumene processing as it is at the moment is obviously it's quite power intensive. And then obviously the waste materials are a big issue. And we have seen a lot of focus in the last 12 to 18 months, uh, particularly from the Western chemicals companies in terms of how to use the waste materials in a economically viable way 
and environmentally viable way so they don't just have to go to waste. And I mean, if you talk to the guys from Albemarle, they're very keen to, to mention that in their plants in Western Australia and China, they're looking to to have byproduct streams for the for the waste materials, not basically have to take them back to the mine and bury them in the ground. That's something to consider. You know, we hope that these things can come through and that they can make the industry more sustainable. That would be a great uh, a great result, I think. Very often, companies they have multiple assets. The market only gives them value for one or two, or if you're, they're producing like Albemarle, they're just focused uh, kind of on EBITDA. But in Lithium America's case, that's not the case, I don't think. I think the market does give some value to Thacker Pass and it gives some value to Kachari Olarize. I would argue they probably give no value to the Millennial acquisition or the Arena acquisition, but I'm not sure. You never know. So I'm curious, how, how do you, as they split into two companies, it's a $3 billion market cap company, there's a certain amount of cash that'll go to each company, but how do you think the market's going to value Thacker Pass plus a 10% or 5% interest in um, in green technology metals, you know, versus the Argentina assets? It's definitely hard to say because it's not exactly clear sort of what the pro forma structure will look like if you alluded to sort of the shares, the allocation of cash. If I'm just sort of baseline looking at my current numbers, uh, like roughly 40% of my NAV today is is sitting in Thacker Pass. But obviously, like right now, stock's currently trading at around half my NAV. So to your point, I would say they're not, they're giving some value to Thacker Pass, but not a, a large, large amount. And that also depends on what price deck you're looking at, assuming um, within the numbers. But if you're saying, like, 40, if you say 40% of your NAV, you have a $50 target, which is about 80% upside from here. And it's a three billion market cap company today, US. So call it your, your target price is like five or six billion dollars and 40% of that is Thacker Pass. You think Thacker Pass on its own is worth two and a half, three billion dollars? Yeah, like on my numbers right now, yeah, like I, my NAV is about $60. I use a blended target price, but Thacker Pass is equivalent to $40 per share on, on my numbers. Obviously, there's some execution risk that, that's in that as well. Like we'll, we'll see, this is a big undertaking, um, this project from a capital cost perspective, from execution risk it being one of the first Oh, clay projects to see itself through to, to full-scale production. Yeah, it, it's a large portion of my value, but I don't think the market is, is giving them as much credit, obviously, just based on where the share price is currently trading. So they're definitely heavily discounting Thacker Pass, and I think they want to see how that performs going forward. Um, on the separation, though, I do think it makes sense. I think the two parts separate from one another is, is worth more than the two parts together. I think in my discussions with institutional investors, there's different shareholder bases. I think there's some shareholders who want exposure to Qatari. They want exposure to near-term production. They feel very comfortable with Argentina. And then there's another subset of shareholders who really like Thacker Pass. They like the U.S. angle. They like GM's involvement. Um, so I think that will be interesting when they separate the two. And I also think it will simplify M&A going forward. You alluded to green technology. I also think in Argentina, there's a lot of opportunities there. Obviously, Gang Fang and, and Lithium America own a number of assets that are in close proximity to each other. So yeah, I think I think the two separate will be worth more than the combined, but it's hard to say exactly what that will look like until we get more details. Okay. And and I want to talk about the GM investment because, you know, we've been waiting for auto OEMs to come in. Like it used to be a few years ago, if a Chinese off-taker like came into a Western Australian spodumene company, you know, the stock would take off, right? You know, mm -hmm. and, and people realize that 
the stock stopped going up when it was a no name, right? But then if an LG cam or, uh, you know, someone else came in or Mitsui or, you know, when Tesla came into Kidman, you know, that, that was big news, right? But a lot of those were just like offtake agreements with brand names without actually capital being committed. Here we have for the first time, really a major credible counterparty, uh, big three American auto company writing an equity check. And it's not just for processing. It's not just like a, a DLE millions for controlled thermal. It's $650 million where they'll own, I don't know, up to 19%, 19.9%. You know, they're very interested, obviously, in Thacker Pass and his fourth Thacker Pass. So it's contingent on the separation. But this is not just processing. You know, government motors, or general motors, lithium <laughs> is, is following Ford, you know, 100 years ago they're getting into mining right like let, let let there be no doubt like general motors is getting into mining what's interesting also is that they ultimately decided after years of going back and forth are they going to do carbonate are they going to do hydroxide they didn't know like th this is for carbonate right it's forty thousand tons you know forty thousand tons for carbonate but does gm need any carbonate right or i thought they mostly like hummers and, and lyrics are you know, mostly hydroxide. So what are your thoughts on like what this means? Yeah, my view is that there was there was going to be an auto OEM who came into Thacker Pass. I think just given the scale of the resources location in the United States, the IRA benefits, I, I think the company was making clear that was likely going to be the case. So it didn't necessarily come as a surprise to me. Obviously, they're taking on quite a bit of risk. They don't really know anything about mining. So, so it's obviously an interesting move, but I do think it's a vote of confidence in the project and I'm sure they've done extensive due diligence um, on Thacker Pass and on the flow sheet. And I think it's a positive for the sector as a whole. I think we need the auto OEMs involved. Uh, I think we need the capital that they bring into the sector. And I think it's something that we're going to see continue over the course of the next 12, 24 months and going forward. I mean, we, we were just discussing earlier, Volkswagen announced last night that it has plans to get into mining. I think it was last week they announced they're building um, a plant in Ontario their first EV battery plant in North America. So I think, do we see Volkswagen move next and, and look at some projects that are near term in Ontario or Quebec, potentially? Do you think that this is like a big risk for uh, uh, GM? Is this like a sizable investment or is this just like an option? I mean, six, 650 million is, is sizable, but it's not, a, it's not a massive bite to chew for GM. Like, I don't think this is a, oh, let's just throw some money at them and see what happens. Like, I think they're, making a bet that they will get production out of that asset. And it's been a serious bet that has a lot of due diligence behind it. But I mean, they're, they're a very large corporation. 650 million isn't, isn't the end of the world for them, but it's not. Yeah. I don't think they're flipping a coin on this one. I think there's a lot of thought that was put behind it. I got it. What are your thoughts on the deal from LAC's perspective versus GM's perspective in terms of valuation, what they received for their 650 million in terms of offtake and, and rights? I mean, I think, GM got a decent deal, but I think there was also some reasoning behind that. Like they are securing the 10 years of supply for, for basically phase one plus the potential extension. I think that opens up Lithium Americas to get more funding from the DOE in terms of, I think they're projecting somewhere between 55% and 75%. And I know the DOE has mentioned, and I think even Jigger Shaw in your discussion with him mentioned that if there is some sort of offtake five or 5, 10, 15 years and and a clear sort of direction what the pricing would be on that, you could get towards the higher range of the loan being provided by the, the loan program from the DOE. I think that's correct. You can correct me if not, but 
I think I think, so I think that hard. that was a portion of it. I, I think look, we represented Lack for a long time back in the day, and when they came to Kachari Olaraz and and getting substantial debt funding from Ganfeng, and they gave up twenty years of offtake, but they did that so that they could take on max debt. So I think the, their thinking was similar here. How do we get max debt from the loan programs office? And and it, it clearly sounded from our Jigger Shah interview is that if you lock in a long-term tier one counterparty, you know, we don't know what the pricing is, but there's certainly pricing in there that the DOE will, will know that they'll they'll basically say, okay, well, if they're going to produce for seven or eight thousand and there's a floor price of 20 or 25, you know, the, the reasonable prospect of repayment, which is their key threshold at the loan programs office, um, you know, will be met. So 75% loan to to the value is is high. Typically companies, you know, seek to get like 50 to 60%. So um, it does seem that, that that's the route that that Lithium America, the, the strategy Lithium America is taking. Um, there are other companies, you know, like Piedmont and, and, and others who have applications in with the loan programs office that you know haven't signed long-term off days because there's there's a give and take right like taking on a lot of debt yes it's low cost like how, how critically important is getting that low cost debt versus you know financing you know through equity or other means um you don't have to answer that question it's just a a theoretical <laughs> uh, you know out there okay and then the, from Lithium America's strategy, like once this is like, in my opinion, this is like the most ambitious project ever undertaken in the lithium world, right? 40,000 plus 40,000, $2.3 billion stage one, you know, flow sheet that is, has produced, I don't know, hundreds of tons, you know, that they're now going to have to scale to 40,000 tons. Do you think that the company should pursue kind of like the Ioneer route, which is like one project, you know, and focus on that? Or do you think, you know, this foothold that they have in green technology metals and spodumene that like the the the, the split off, you know, Thacker Pass, is it just going to focus on Thacker Pass or is it going to add on like they added Millennial and an arena in Argentina? You know, and it seems like they're very interested in in kind of Canadian spodumene so what do you think like as a stock because the stock will go into financing and then construction and then it'll be a, a number of years before you know it's in production again so what do you think the strategy for lithium america should be for north america and and what do you think it will be my preference would be to probably not complicate the story too much i think the main focus should be on on thacker pass just given as you sort of alluded to um, the risks associated with that project and the, the large undertaking. So I think keeping it focused on Thacker Pass, but at the same time maintaining, I, I think it's valuable to maintain the strong relationship with GT1 and their experience in Hard Rock. I think GT1 itself is looking to continue to be active in Canada on their current projects, Root and Seymour, but also aggressively looking at other opportunities to expand um, their resource base and get into production as soon as possible. So I think down the line, there's there's probably some some opportunity for those companies to come together. I don't know if immediately in the near term is is the right strategy. I, I think I think the focus is on Thacker Pass currently and will probably remain that way. But I, I think they'll keep a relationship. Okay, now let's switch topics to you know just auto OEMs. We talked about Volkswagen. They haven't done anything. I thought after Battery Day they were going to come into European Metals Holdings or something like that. I thought they would you know, but here we are two years later and Volkswagen's largely done nothing, although I think they signed some offtake agreement with Vulcan. 
as did a number of other brand name auto OEMs. But as you look at the landscape of the auto OEMs, Tesla, GM, you know, Tesla's in Piedmont, Liontown, and Kidman, and some other spots. I mean, GM, you know, dipped their toe into control thermal, now Thacker Pass. GM's also with Livent. Stellantis is only in Vulcan, as far as I could tell. Ford, you know, announced the deal with Liontown, but also Compass Minerals. Again, Vulcan, uh, sorry, Volkswagen and Vulcan, Renault and Vulcan, you know, BMO, BMO, the BMW is in Livent. Toyota Sushos in, in Allchem. I don't know, where's Honda? Where are, I'm probably missing, Mercedes? So which companies are, are you know, are getting this right? You know, in a game of musical chairs, you know, which ones are are going to win and, and which ones are not? And is like GM getting into Thacker Pass, you know, is that it? Are they done? Or, or like, they haven't gone into Hard Rock at all, but, you know, others seem to be interested in Hard Rock. What do you think about it? I think what you find on average is that the Western European companies have generally focused on what they perceive as the most friendly ESG routes. So that's why you found Stellantis and a number of the Western European companies going into Vulcan, not necessarily understanding what the risks are, but particularly of delays on, on, in the DLE route. Whereas, you know, the rest of the world is pretty much open for, you know, the US OEMs. Uh, the Japanese OEMs, and then Argentina is open for the Chinese OEMs. So I think it's important for all OEMs to have a have a range of sources of lithium and other materials. I mean, I think it's very dangerous to just be exposed to one supplier because you know, there's obviously the operational risks, but there's also the development risks of, of those suppliers, and they may very well not come into production as planned. So I think it's it's really important that um, all of the OEMs have uh, quite disparate sources of raw materials. And I think that some of them need to wake up to that because I sort of get the impression that a lot of them are not aware of the risks of the different technologies in, in the sector. More deals need to be done. And, you know, as Katie alluded to earlier, more capital needs to be made available to the industry, to the mining industry, because so far you know, I mean, we can count the number of deals on the fingers of one hand. There just hasn't been enough capital made available. And we saw last year that funding availability in battery raw materials is very, very low. I mean, 20, 20% down year on year in terms of lithium funding in a year when we had record, record lithium prices. So, you know, that was because the equity market was pretty closed. The equity market's looking pretty, pretty closed this year as well. So if that's the case, then the industry needs to be able to access capital from different sources and and who better than the OEMs who've got quite a, quite a lot of uh, demand for these materials. All of that, very good point. I was thinking like this time last year, or let's say February of last year, I was all excited. It was going to be a fantastic year. And then, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and inflation and interest rates, you know, just killed financing. Mm. Started this year, January, super bullish. And now we have kind of US bankruptcies of, of banks, right? And we're in a financial crisis. So what's going to happen the remainder of this year? We, we don't know. But you would think with these depressed valuations, right? Some of these auto OEMs or other the Rio Tinto should be licking their chops and, you know, seeking opportunities to acquire companies. But you don't, you haven't seen very, you haven't seen hostile bids at all in lithium like you saw wailu and and bhp fighting over neurant and nickel last year 
Most things are, are kind of friendly. So Rio Tinto bought Rincon. It was available for sale. We talked about that previously. Neolithium was for sale. So when things are for sale, right, there are there's activity. But, you know, why wouldn't now be a fantastic time for auto OEMs uh, and or even established producers like Pil, um, like the Pilbara or Albemarle to pick off, you know, some of the advanced developers or even some of the, you know, promising junior developers, or maybe the stock prices haven't fallen or the valuations haven't yeah. fallen enough for them. I like that's kind of my thought is like I think with the pullback we're seeing in pricing the equities, I, I think it makes sense. But all the big groups that I think that we could see move, some of the larger producers, other miners, OEMs. I think they're all looking at the same near-term macro uncertainty that we are. So I think in their mind, maybe they're thinking, well, why don't we wait and see if potentially there's a chance that we could get it even cheaper? We have seen a few moves. I mean, we did see Tianchi, yeah. uh, Tianchi Lithium Australia go for Essential, which was a, a development asset in, in Western Australia. And obviously there are ongoing rumors of of stake building in some of the um, Canadian exploration companies. Mm-hmm. So but I, I must say, I have been quite surprised that some of the bigger miners haven't come into the sector. You know, BHP's come out recently and said it's not considering lithium. Because um, it's well supplied in their view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I understand why the big miners wouldn't have come in a couple of years ago when, you know, lithium prices were low and lithium companies were producing, you know, only a couple of hundred million in, in EBITDA. But now... When companies are producing, you know, two or three billion in in EBITDA a year, then surely that's got to be on the radar for some of the the top tier mining companies. You know, you'd be surprised if it wasn't. Yeah, I've got to say, if we see M and A in the next coming months, like in this lower price environment, I, w- I got to say it could be some like it could be something coming out of left field. Like it could be you know another large OEM, an oil and gas company, some of the big miners. I think we might. See more of that than M and A within you know the current lithium producers and some of some of the smaller guys. When I was at the PDAC last week, I met with a number of issuers who had just been to the BMO conference the prior week, and they told me that and they've been going there for years for lithium, and and these were lithium developers and lithium producers, and the the nature and the tenor of the conversations among advanced developers and existing producers about merging with each other, right, it was heating up very significantly. There's a lot to come. I think intralithium mergers will have external, you know, it could be a, a, a Rio Tinto. We always you know, talk about them or, or auto OEMs. And to this point, we've talked about the spodumene duopoly, you know, of mineral resources in Albemarle and Pilbara, you know, shutting down Wajina, shutting down Altura. We're still reaping the benefit of that supply taken off the market that has not yet fully come onto the market, right? So that that was a supply constraint. Those tons are now coming into market, but you also have Sigma, North American Lithium, and Core all coming to market with spodumene right now, same time. They're not part of the this duopoly. They want to, they're not going to be disciplined. They're going to produce as much as they can and ship as much as they can. So do you think someone like a Pilbara or an Albemarle strategically makes a move on someone like Sigma because that's the largest, I guess, you know, of 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 this grouping? Or do you think it doesn't matter? The demand is so great that the supply from of spodumene from these three deposits 
shouldn't impact the overall imbalance in favor of uh, undersupply. I don't think it makes sense for a big player to come in and and spend three or four billion to take someone out and then shut down the asset. You I was I think it makes it much more. I don't think that I wasn't suggesting shut it down, yeah. but maybe just yeah. view the expansion yeah. maybe slower than Anna is. Yeah. Pushing stage two and three i think it makes more sense for them to control their own production and you know that way and hope that the others follow suit but i i also would flag that you know even if ev sales only go up 30 percent uh year on year this year that's still a hell of a lot of extra lithium demand that we're going to need in the in the market I mean, maybe we will see the lithium producers acting, but um, I, I still think that there's a very strong demand demand equation. And and also don't forget, you know, none of the assets that have come on in the market over the last five years have actually come in production on time and on spec. So, you know, even though these, these projects are intended to come in on the second half of the year, it doesn't mean that they will be able to come in on in the second half of the year. From an OEM perspective, if you look at what the margins and the earnings of OEMs that are still scaling are doing, it's poor. They are not making money. I just had a look at XPeng's results. They're bad. So, you know, Tesla is bigger. They've got historic contracts and so on. But I guess if you're going to face an existential crisis, if you have high battery prices, then it makes complete sense that you need supply and you need price locked in. You can't just have the one. So I, I I think it's unavoidable to make moves for people who are exposed to that. And I, when EVs were a sideshow for the for the major automakers, they left it to the battery cell guys, mostly to the Koreans, and they could you know cover a few EVs, and it was just like a sideshow, Bob. You know, like a novelty act. You know, they had a couple of models or whatever. But that's not the case anymore. So it is always a question of entry point, uh, and we'll see if. What's happening now, I don't know, you know, if there's other things going on, but if that's enough to attract. But, you know, as you well know, lots of conversations are being have had between parties. And I've been surprised at the level of interest from the incumbents to early assets, to early stage assets. So that suggests, you know, there is going to be a showdown on who controls the material and does what with it soon. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think I think that's the side of the argument is if you're a major and you want to control which the speed at which other materials are going to come into the market, it seems like potentially a logical thing to do. I think, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what Albemarle basically tried to do in the last cycle with Minerez to keep Wajina from like out of the market at the time. So I think I think the argument's there for that definitely, and I'm and I'm not surprised that some of the majors are considering that. I don't want to stretch too far into another topic, but I think something that we will see more of potentially is also smaller end mergers, so not necessarily acquisitions, but companies who are looking to generate scale quickly. So say you know, two projects in Canada who each have 20 million tons, shove them together, and then potentially they produce enough that they can justify the downstream capacity or a larger operation producing 500,000 tons instead of 200,000 tons. I, I think that will be another key theme that we might see in the coming years. I, I want to talk about that. Right after, I'm just going to make my own comment. I think Albemarle or Pilbara should buy Sigma, half cash, half stock. That, that When Albemarle bought Rockwood, that's what they did. They paid a high multiple for it. It was it was great. I think for, it would be good for the lithium industry to kind of maintain discipline because alternatively, Tesla should buy Sigma, right? Or someone like that so that they could have one consistent feed for their hydroxide plant and to substantially lower their costs. 
But I don't think Tesla is going to do that because we've seen a lot of procurement people leave Tesla um, to go to other places because Elon doesn't want to get into mining. So to your point, Katie, a company like Allchem, a company like Livent, they are Allchem is the only player in Canada that actually produces spodumene and has experience doing it. Livent has experience in hydroxide. They got to learn the mining part of it. And any thoughts, uh, or are we all kind of like conflicted to say anything? I think um, broadly speaking, large tier one assets that have a lot of scale tend to get a lot of strategic interest. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if something happened on some of those large tier one assets with a lot of scale in Canada. You know, what will be interesting to see going forward is how seriously the different regions look to have a closed loop supply chain. And, you know, is North America going to shut itself off? You know, how quickly will cathode come up on stream? Because that's the middle piece that still needs to be covered as well. It's all fine and well to have the battery end and the production end, but you need the middle piece as well. But, you know, Canada is a big country. It, it, they've chased nickel, gold, a lot of other things. Lithium is something new. It's, you know, people don't think understand the scale of how big Canada is and how much you can look at. And for example, around Patriot and Winsome and Idaho and what have you, how much prospective ground there is. We're talking about enormous amounts. And I think that, you know, there's going to be, you know, m &A activity and it can become a hub because Canada is a country that wants to be part of it and mining is part of it whether there's teething or what have you in the end it's a, it's a country that has substantial mining going on and it's it seems to be keen to be part of this we've talked a lot about canada exporting to the us but just bear in mind that uh, with the new european critical raw materials act <laughs> it talks about a maximum 10% or or a minimum rather 10% of raw materials being sourced in europe and I think Canada has huge opportunities to export to Europe, particularly as its ESG offering is so developed compared to a lot of regions. Yes, the US is a is a really exciting market for Canada, but Europe could also be a, a, a very, very important market for Canada as well. There's a renaissance of manufacturing happening in America. Like the auto industry has not made such investments in such a long period of time. Hard Rock in Western Australia has grown enormously in the last five years. And I believe the opportunity to replicate that in Ontario, Quebec, and Carolina, you know, in my opinion, that's the North American Hard Rock Lithium Triangle is underappreciated. I mean, I've, there's been some talk about peak spodumene. I, I think that's that's a false narrative, to be honest. There's all sorts of reasons why Canada is massively underexplored. We've just seen in the past year major tier one discoveries underway with a lot more to come, in my opinion. So with that, thank you very much for all of you um, in moderating some of our panels as well. And with that, thanks again, guys, and uh, to be continued.